Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Representatives from every country, representatives from really all large organizations across the world coming together to talk about what does our future look like? Bringing every single country in the world together to try and make an agreement on something as complex as climate change is challenging. They all agreed to put climate at the center of their work. That was a foundational shift. Now you go and say, okay, did they actually mobilize those dollars? Here we are two years later. The answer is no. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Oh, hey, it's that time of year again. You know, every news story finally turns towards the thing that we've spent much of our year talking, working, and thinking about climate change in the form of COP, the annual climate conference hosted by the UNFCC. In plain English, that is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But what is COP? Who will be there? Why does it matter to me, to you, to our global fight against climate change, the battle on the front lines of the clean energy transition, as we often say. Well, Solar Warrior, I've got everything you need to know ahead of this COP28 in Dubai, which is November 30th, all the way through December 12th. Okay, here's the deal. Every year, all the big wigs and a lot of the little wigs get together in various places around the world for this thing called COP. But even if you're familiar with the fact that it happens every year, you may not be too familiar with COP's history. It can be tricky to follow the coverage of climate change negotiations. Does this only happen during these two weeks? How do people prepare for it? Who the heck goes? Who gets invited? What happens around all of the conferences or meetings? I had the same questions. Frankly, I don't know all that much about how COP works. But I know some folks. <laughs> so I have co-opted some close friends who have insight, having been to the COP proceedings. Miles Fish is Vice President of Business Development at Perch. But before that, he was on the advance team for none other than John Kerry. And he went to the one COP that most of you probably recognize if you thought about it or re- recognized or realized that COP happens at all, and that's COP21, a.k.a. the Paris Accord, which is the agreement that was signed during the COP in Paris way back in 2015. I also have my friend James Ellsmore, who has been on the show before and who has spent a lot of time in these COP proceedings over the last five plus years, specifically elevating and providing a platform, quite literally this year, a stage for the voices of small island developing states as they, all too often, are the ones who face the biggest risk and impacts of climate change. And then yours and my favorite female podcast host, 
of the industry, Miss Julia Piper, who went back in 2021 to COP26 in Glasgow. Is that right? Am I doing the math right? Yeah, Glasgow. Julia joins fresh off her mini retirement from podcasting and talks all about not just what happened in Glasgow, why it was a consequential cup, but what does this mean for our industry at large? See, she speaks from a position of insider knowledge as the vice president of comms for Goodleap. That's right. One of the largest solar residential solar financiers in the United States. She also is a recovering journalist. See, there are a lot of things to learn. So I wanted to unpack a little bit of it here up front, and then we'll jump right into three fascinating stories of how the folks I just mentioned experienced COP for themselves and what it means for you. Okay, so I mentioned that COP actually stands for Conference of the Parties, and the parties are international governments. You see, these governments come together once a year, but it's not the only time that they're working on or thinking about climate policy. As you'll hear Miles talk specifically to, this process takes over a year, many years, many people's entire careers are dedicated to the work that culminates or that we see manifest in the signings, the treaties, like the Paris Accord that happened in COP. So why was the Paris Agreement so consequential? Well, it was the first international climate agreement committing governments to take action to limit global temperature increases and address those climate impacts that are already happening. And frankly, since the Paris Agreement, COP has really been focused on implementation. There is a roadmap for the wealthy countries, not only to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but implement long-term strategies for climate mitigation and adaptation, and also to provide economic support for the smaller countries who lack the financial resources to deal with climate impact. Okay, okay, but who gets to go to COP? Well, the answer is everyone. Everyone has an equal seat at the table. All 197 countries that signed the Paris Agreement represent independent states around the world, from the smallest islands to the United States, China, Russia, everyone. The UN also sends climate experts, and there are a lot of organizations that are invited to join as observers. While the COP process is meant to be progressive, it can sometimes come with a fair amount of controversy. Like this year, COP is being held in Dubai, and the president of COP is none other than the CEO of the state oil agency. There's been copious writing online about whether or not the state oil company and the cop president are greenwashing. But I want to just note that even in light of what may seem ironic or controversial, this is a milestone. It's a major step forward in my view. And I didn't really think so until I was listening to an episode that the Energy Gang did. And it was it was really quite informative. They go into the geopolitical scenario or situation and some of the controversy surrounding the president of COP. But I also feel like given that Woodmack and some of the pundits on the board are also a little bit more centric and can speak to both oil and gas and renewables, it's a fairly 
fair conversation. I would encourage you to go check it out. I was looking for controversy. I was looking for a fight to pick. But honestly, I think that this cop is going to be one to watch. It's going to be one to track. And that's why we're here. Please make sure that you're following and click the bell on LinkedIn or here on YouTube so that you'll be notified when we do post about COP. I look forward to bringing you some social media takeovers from our friends who are on the ground in COP. If you are headed to COP and you'd like to participate in that, please reach out to us, podcast at suncast.me. I'd love to hear what questions you think I should have asked or how you will be following along. Please let me know in the comments below on YouTube or over on LinkedIn if you're listening on the podcast or actually watching on social media. Thank you for tuning in. Now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we dig into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. There are many ways to experience COP and possibly the most fortuitous could be the advance team for a major diplomat from one of the top you know, G8 countries. Say if you were on the advance team of John Kerry, perhaps 2015, the famous Paris Accord. Well, lucky for you, I'm friends with just such person. Miles Fish is VP of BizDev over at Perch Energy. But long before he was helping grow the community solar market at Perch and Blue Wave, he was at the U.S. Department of State. Today, he's going to pull back a little bit of the veil on what it's like to be on the advance team for John Kerry at one of the most consequential cop of our time. Hey, Miles, good to see you again. Happy to be here, Nico. So, brother... It's rare to be able to, I mean, of the, of the 8 billion people on the planet, how many people are on an advanced team? Uh, you know, I mean, a couple dozen, I guess, in the U.S. government. Um, and, you know, there's elsewhere, but we, we do have <laughs> a stronger presence from the U.S. on advanced, advanced sides. We, we take do, you, do, do the different advanced teams get together and like, you know, have parties after everything's over? Not really, actually, because we all are so kind of in our world and trying to make sure things go well for the person we're responsible for making sure kind of logistics are smooth. So, well, as I said in the beginning, um, your career uh, in solar was preceded by a diplomatic career, which was preceded by, as I, a Peace Corps volunteer that's right. career that's right. over in Kazakhstan. Is that right? That's right. What uh, what led you to the, to the State Department? It was actually a bit tied to our um being a Peace Corps volunteer, uh, if you're, as you finish your Peace Corps career, you're able to get into the government, the U.S. government, uh, somewhat more in a somewhat more streamlined way. You bypass uh, some of the bureaucracy. So that allowed me to get uh, my initial job at the State Department. And eventually from there uh, was hired into the secretary's office 
which has, is actually a function at the State Department. It's not, you know, you can work for the secretary's office and, and kind of continue on through uh, actual specific individuals. Um, and this advanced team, this, this group of individuals that travel in advance of the secretary to make sure the logistics run smoothly, gets all the meetings in place set up. Um, you know, that was, that was the team I was a part of. Okay. So for perspective, I've mentioned that often the negotiations that are sort of seen as culminating at COP are just that they're culminating. How long in advance are the conversations being fostered that lead to the kinds of agreements or sort of uh, declarations that we see at a COP? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say it's, it's hard to actually put a start date on them. There are individuals or their entire career is kind of negotiating on the United States behalf uh, on climate issues. The Paris Accord ends. The next thing that, you know, individuals that are that are negotiating our behalf, they're starting to talk about, all right, what are our what are our uh, NDCs, the the, uh, you know, the commitments that we make? What are what are those going to look like and how do we negotiate those and make sure we're in a good position against our uh, you know allies and, and other folks that, that signed that agreement? So. It's hard to put a, a beginning date on it, but but think about it as years. Um, think about people having a career in this in this area at the State Department or at Treasury that uh, kind of specialize in making sure we're putting ourselves in a good position in, in these conversations. Do you remember, I, it's seven years ago, but do you remember the conversations internally about COP? And what can you share? What was the general sense of the importance of it, especially going into what we know now as the Paris Accord and, yeah. and what the commitments that were made there. But what was consequential about it in your mind at the time versus now looking back on it? I recall there being quite a bit of discussion on the two degrees or 1.5 degrees. Yeah. What the commitment will be. Uh, and the hope was to get to the 1.5 commitment and there were countries that were less willing to sign on to the the kind of agreement itself uh, without that 1.5 commitment uh, that two you know, a belief that two wasn't enough. And these are like the Pacific Island countries, uh, kind of Marshall Islands comes to mind as, as one that was um, I think we went back to a couple of times. But they they felt like their future was under jeopardy under a two degree commitment and kind of needed the world to, to make a commitment to 1.5. Uh, if they were going to be on board. And so that's, I recall that issue being, you know, something that was under discussion for quite some time. Uh, and it raised the profile of those countries. They don't usually have a seat at the, uh, at some of the, you know, um, you know, at these, at these tables kind of at the very end, uh, just kind of their geopolitical position doesn't allow that. But in this discussion, it very, they were very much part of that. They, we, you know, the world wanted them to be, to be uh, kind of participants in the in the overall accords, and they were looking at the risk to them and needed you know India, China, all, United States to step up and say, all right, we can make bigger commitments that allow us to uh, kind of keep those keep the global warming to a, to a certain extent that won't put us at risk. Uh, so that was a, that was one. Others were kind of financial, um, making commitments to. Uh, to some of those countries or to kind of India, who has who had quite a bit of, who was just kind of, you know, you know these are developing countries and developing yeah. countries historically have, have used kind of dirty fuels. And so the, for the first time, we were asking developing nations to commit to clean energy rather than what is traditionally thought of as, you know, cheaper or cheaper kind of uh, carbon-based fuels. Uh, so that was making a financial commitment to help them transition or not even transition, but 
but to kind of create their energy infrastructure with clean technologies was, was another one. And it's fascinating just in the last seven years to see the unbelievable commitment from India specifically to clean energy. The thing that stands out for me about COP is that it's one nation, one voice. It's like you, you don't have, yeah. un unlike other diplomatic environments, a weighted importance of each country. So the Marshall Islands, the Palau can stand up and say, my voice counts. You know, there's something unique about COP where it's, you know, really the entire world, you know, representatives for every from every country, representatives uh, from, you know, large, uh, you know, really all large organizations across the world coming together to talk about well, what does our future look like? I mean, it, it is like as grandiose as a conversation as you can think of, but that is what you're doing. So when you're there, you're, you're in the minutia of just like getting through the day, you have things you're trying to accomplish. But it is kind of such a grandiose conversation that that everyone's trying to get through. Um, and certainly kind of as you're winding down from it, you you allow yourself to have those thoughts like, wow, what just happened? What did we just accomplish? Um, and uh, so it's a it's a you know a cool setting. Um did did change me. I think we'll get to that in a second, but it certainly did change me. Miles, I would love to hear the experience on the ground and then after COP, what you came home with? Because what I know in the background is that it made a consequential shift in the way you see your career. Uh, so that in and of itself is sort of meaningful from my, my perspective. I, I want folks to be able to take away, I can't go to COP. I'm not there. It's on the other, literal other side of the world in the desert. I'm here in Missouri uh, or you know Arkansas or wherever in flyover country, trying to build a solar company. What does this matter to me at all? Could you help tie those two sort of dis, uh, disparate realities together? First on the ground, um, what I was doing on the ground was, is setting up these meetings we just talked about, you know, you know trying to uh, influence, you know, make sure all these countries commit to, or are able to commit to the same similar things. And uh, I'll give a little bit of perspective on on what that looked like on on kind of setting up those meetings. So, COP itself is a conference. Uh, it is. It and Paris was. Uh, it was at a conference center, not that dissimilar from what folks, some of your listeners, might be experienced at at SPI. It feels a little more familiar or familiar or uh, kind of a, a comparison to. Anaheim last year than, than right. Las Vegas this year. But just imagine a very large conference kind of setting in which there are vendors, you know, there are folks that are set up and, you know, um, trying to get people to get, you know, inspired by their new product or new idea and, and having them visit, you know, you know, things that they're selling. But there is also a portion of that conference center that was set up for meetings. Um, it's the United States had a, you know, a, a section of that conference center for meetings that were set up in a secure fashion. Uh, so these were not just secure from, from a physical standpoint and also from an information standpoint. So, you know, John Kerry walks in or President Obama walks in, Secret Service gets gets comfortable that, you know, they're in there safely and they're able to have those meetings. This conference center itself was out at Charles de Gaulle Airport. That's outside of Paris, uh, depending on how you hit traffic. It could be anywhere from like 45 to three hours <laughs> drive. Some of the meetings happened there. Some of them happened more in central Paris. Um, and it was really just all figuring out who's where, how, how do we coordinate, 
a lot of it was last minute. It was, it was, you know, trying to get this stuff done, you know, as quickly as possible. Um, and so that was what the, you know, the day-to-day looked like. It was like, all right, we said we, in that, in that last meeting, we said we have to have a meeting with someone else now and we have to set that up and it's going to be in six hours. How do we, you know, who do we need to talk to on their side uh, in order to coordinate? And what does the picture look like? How do we, you know, get the PR about this, that this is happening? So that's what the days looked like as the conversations were going on. To your uh, second question, kind of what is the impact? What, what, how did it impact me and, and how can others think about it? When I was, when I was there, I was mid to late 20s. Uh, at that point, my career was really international relations. And, I, and that, was, that was kind of how I was thinking my, my, my career would go. Thinking about grad school, but kind of international relations was how I thought about my career. But, but COP exposed me to a different mission uh, that that I felt a connection to. And that was, uh, you know, making sure that, that, you know, we were set up on a, in a sustainable path. And part of the commitments that were made there were commitments for the, for, from, a, you know, a, a public standpoint. You know, it was public commitments by, you know, countries around the world. But it was clear to me that the implementation of COP was happening through the private sector. Countries themselves were going to say, this is what we commit to, but the execution was going to be the private sector. And so it, I, I felt that connection to this mission and I wanted to be, I, I felt also that I wanted to be involved in the implementation, the execution of those yeah. commitments. And so that is the transition that happened in my head. I think what what I want is my career to be about executing against you know the commitments that we're making that the globe is is making, and you know while my day to day looks a lot different than it, than it used to, that's what I see myself doing uh, at, at, on a day to day. You know, thinking about how we can, uh, you know, community solar is where Perch exists. Thinking about how we can, as Perch communicate what the benefits of community solar are to individuals so that they might be a little bit more supportive of yeah. kind of the larger goal of the state uh, that they're in or the city that they're in or the country as we're kind of trying to follow through, uh, trying to get more uh, community solar in the ground uh, so that we can change that electric, like, you know, kind of the electric makeup. That is how I, how it impacted me and how it continues to impact me is, is kind of it changed my trajectory of my career. I'm in a new chapter now. Uh, but there's there's a very clear connection in my head about um, how that tr- transition happened. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Before I let you go, just pulling a thread here. Any crazy story, either um, particularly at COP, but just generally moving a diplomat from one meeting to the next unscheduled uh, or perhaps impromptu meeting yeah. that stands out for you? <laughs> um, the one that comes to mind, I guess, was, and I hinted at this, but in all these meetings, there's a public, you know, uh, uh, the public image of that meeting matters. We want to, we want folks to know that we've, we've, you know, this meeting has taken place and that usually um, comes through with like an image of folks standing in front of their flag and shaking hands. Yeah. Finding all of those flags for the Pacific <laughs> Island countries was very <laughs> difficult. There was a flag vendor in Paris that we got to know over the, over the course of those two weeks. Cause it was like, uh, the flag itself is over at Charles de Gaulle, uh, and we need to have it at the hotel. And so now we have to go downtown Paris and, buy, and purchase a new flag for for this meeting to happen. So 
let me just say that Veep is the most realistic go- show about government that I've seen. Um, there were, but that those some of those some of the stressing about kind of getting the flag set up is uh, comes to mind. That's beautiful. Well, brother, I'm glad that. Uh, you know, where to buy the right flag is no longer the, uh, the, the struggle of the day for you. Yep. Um, thank you for the struggle that you all are actively engaged in here on the home front, yep. bringing more renewable energy to, uh, particularly to communities, low to moderate income and distributing solar in ways that rooftops alone cannot. Miles Fish is vice president of business development at Perch Energy. Miles, for those who are interested, how could they find out more about you? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is a great, a great spot. Perchenergy.com is another spot you can find us. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm open to, to all message on LinkedIn if you want to hit me there. Follow Miles on, on LinkedIn. I'm committing to you all that he's going to be making at least one interesting post about COP28. Yes. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey friends, I have a proposition for you. Instead of freezing your tail off like I am here in North Carolina, why don't you jump on a plane Come to San Diego, January 17th to 19th, and hang out with us at InterSolar. InterSolar North America and Energy Storage North America, as you're probably aware, one of the premier U.S.-based trade show and conferences focused on solar energy storage and EV charging infrastructure. Suncast listeners can get free access to the expo hall by using the code SUNCAST at intersolar.us. That code will also get you 20% off your conference pass to learn, connect, and conduct business with the most innovative companies in the solar and energy storage business. Go to intersolar.us, use the code SUNCAST. And hey, don't forget to stick around all the way through Friday because yours truly may be on stage at the Solar Games. Come check it out. See you in San Diego. Joining us from across the pond is a return guest to Suncast, Mr. James Ellsmore from Island. I almost said Solar Head of State, but Island oh. Innovations. I feel like when we recorded, Island Innovations was a gleam in your eye. It wasn't even a business. I was just thinking that when you said I was here last time, how long ago? Four, five years? Something 2017, like 2017. Wow. A world, a world ago. You know, Frank, frankly, it's it's all of the cops ago that you have attended. So the reason that we want to chat today is because James Ellsmore, who runs a company called Island Innovations, has been the voice for the islands most in danger of climate change and most in need of climate action. He has created a business around helping rally those voices and in particular, giving them a platform to stand on and quite literally this year a stage at 
COP28. James, good to see you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, mate. It's, it's been too long, and I'm glad that we have a good, uh, a good reason to engage on something that I know you have deep experience with. The theme of the conversation at large today is not so much the geopolitical issues with COP28, but for the uninitiated, what the heck is this thing? And I think it's interesting from your perspective to tell the story of why COP matters, mm-hmm. not not why it is a, uh, a geopolitical volleyball. <laughs> so can you just give the listeners a little bit of an understanding of Island Innovations, the work that you do, and the presence that you will have at COP28, and perhaps a little background on your experience up to now with engaging in the various COPs that you've attended? For sure. So to start off with Island Innovation, as you already mentioned, we are a network and a media platform focused on islands, as you can imagine, um, of any type. So we work with the islands off the coast of Maine with a few hundred people to Puerto Rico, Fiji, Hawaii, islands of all shapes and sizes with the central idea that these islands share in common the same challenges and the same opportunities. Renewable energy and the challenges around energy is, of course, one of those, and more broadly, climate change and the impacts of climate change impacts them too. And the COP is important. Um, So every year, this climate change conference has happened over the last 28 years. This year is COP28. Um, And some people might be familiar or more familiar with the Paris Agreement, which was one of the agreements that has come out of COP in terms of getting global action on climate change and emissions. And as you can imagine, Uh, bringing every single country in the world together to try and make an agreement on something as complex as climate change is challenging. And so this is why the COP is uh, almost going to be a never-ending cycle, really, of trying to bring those different players together and make some decisions. And started off really with a focus on how all these countries agree to cut emissions in some way, how to measure that. Now, a lot of the conversation is around financing the costs of climate change and how we do that. So um, every year it's in a different city and a different part of the world. It rotates between different regions. And in December, it will be in Dubai with um, tens of thousands of people uh, attending from various different parts of the climate change sector. Um, in a way, the negotiations, which are the core of all the countries, only make up a small part of the event now because you have yeah. this legal political negotiations and then everything that happens around that that brings people together in this in this area how is cop organized I, I watched a little of some of our friends who attended in cop 27 and began to have a better understanding that it's generally kind of a massive event so for the uninitiated give us a sense of what one might expect to encounter? Uh, do, do you attend general sessions? Are there pavilions? How do the various activities arrange themselves? So COP is not really an event as such. It's an event mm. of events. There are hundreds of different events and spaces and things and conversations taking place at any one time over a two-week two period. Um, as I mentioned before, you have the central area of the negotiations, which the vast majority of visitors don't go to. I never go to. I've, I've been a few times actually in the past, 
And that's almost a legal negotiation discussing whether we should use a, a comma or a full stop or, a, or, 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 you know, very, very minutia conversation. And a lot of those details have actually been fleshed out. COP is the culmination of a year of negotiations. So it's not right. that everything is happening in these two weeks. A lot of the details have already been uh, made over the last year. Uh, and this is the final part where the prime ministers, the presidents come together and um, make the big announcements. So that's at the core. Surrounding that, you have the blue zone, which is where the pavilions are. So various countries, regions, interest groups have their own pavilion at the COP. Um, the UK, the US, a number of large countries will have a pavilion. The Caribbean as a region has a pavilion. And those are a, a pavilion is essentially a space um, for that country or group to hold its own events. So in the UK pavilion, there will be obviously promoting um, speakers and topics of interest to the UK government at the time. The Caribbean pavilion that we're working with, there's a range of events focused on issues for small island states, etc. Outside of that blue zone, so you need a pass to be able to go to the blue zone. And those passes- Another question I have is if anybody can go or how you get there. <laughs> yeah, and the passes are becoming a hot commodity themselves. It's becoming harder and harder every year to actually get a pass to go up as the event balloons in, in uh, popularity in a way of people seeing themselves needing to be there. But actually outside of this blue zone, this UN zone, you also have the green zone, which is an area that is open to the public. Um, obviously the people living in Dubai, they see this huge event and they want to take part in some way. So you have this open area. And actually in hotels, in venues across the city, there'll be a myriad of other events happening at the same time. So it's not just what's happening in the core UN zone. It's really the whole city is taken over um, for these different events around uh, climate issues. It's amazing if you search, uh, for example, how is COP organized, COP28 organized, or how to get access to COP28, you see things as varied as Environmental Defense Fund to the own, your own, our own United States Department of Energy website, and uh, even climateaction.org has an innovation zone. Um, you know, one of the things that caught my eye and <clears throat> that I wanted to have you talk about is the Island of Hope. Because as you, uh, as you enunciated, there are different zones people have access to. And in those zones, there are stages, pavilions, et cetera, that uh, demonstrate what kinds of climate action are being taken around the world. Can you talk a little bit about Island of Hope? So this year, we're hosting a five-day um, platform, uh, the Island of Hope, with climate action, as you mentioned. Um, this is in the innovation zone, so outside the UN center, which means it's open to uh, a wider group of people who may not necessarily have badges uh, to go. And this, uh, this event will put a spotlight on the issues faced by island jurisdictions at the COP. Um, so we obviously, the, the small island developing states, or the SIDS as they're known, are some of the most vulnerable regions to the impacts of climate change. And we think it's important that they also have a space to discuss the issues close to their hearts. When we're talking about reducing carbon emissions globally, actually these countries are not the ones that are um, really uh, creating any major emissions. They're the ones yeah. that are dealing more with the adaptation and how to face them. Um, yeah. And also there's a number of subnational jurisdictions. So places like Puerto Rico or Hawaii that obviously... Um, are also very vulnerable, share a lot in common with these independent countries, 
but don't have a seat at the table as they're part of the US and not an independent state. So it's a slightly different dynamic. And the idea of this space is to bring together those island regions with the island states that are geographically very much uh, very similar and create a, a space for people to come together and talk. And so we'll be kicked off by the president of Palau on the Monday speaking. We have a number of government representatives from the different, um, different island nations participating and then different sessions um, around some of these core issues, as I mentioned, energy um, being a very important one for many islands, uh, but also climate resilience, climate adaptation, um, and some of the legal issues around uh, climate change as well. What are some of the higher order pressing issues that folks from large continental countries may not uh, immediately assume or understand are consequential things that are life-threatening, country-threatening to these small island developing states that are themselves fighting for their voice, their their place at the table, which as we've discussed, COP is unique in that it is uh, one voice, uh, sort of one state, one voice. There's no sort of weighting by size of country at COP, which is beautiful. But could you enunciate some of the struggles or challenges that countries like Palau, as an example, are dealing with as a result of the climate change that they're encountering? The core issue comes to finance. Who pays for the impacts of climate change? And we'll see a lot about that. But actually, one of the interesting issues that the island states are focusing on is how do we um, how do we measure vulnerability moving away from GDP? Because often the small island states get put in a middle or upper income bracket um, because of being a small size, often having large hotels, large tourism industries. But that does not necessarily reflect the reality. So when they're put in this kind of higher income group, they actually lose access to certain finance from the UN and from other organizations. So one of the issues is actually around how do we measure vulnerability and how do the small island states fit into that as vulnerable places? Because, um, I mean, we can look at places like Dominica, for example, that was devastated a few years ago by a hurricane. You can have your entire GDP of an entire country wiped out overnight. Um, And that puts you in a very different vulnerability situation than um, Florida, which obviously is very vulnerable to hurricanes, but as part of the U.S. has this uh, area behind it that people can go to that can can come to its aid. And so when we talk about um, COP this year, a lot of the small island states and the less uh, low-income countries are saying, well, we know that climate change is already happening. I think we've moved beyond this stop climate change idea. We know that climate change is already happening and it's about limiting the impacts of that and also paying for the adaptations that are necessary uh, for um, the most vulnerable places. And um, so a lot of that looks like a transfer of money from the richer polluting countries to poorer countries or more vulnerable countries, including the small island states. Yeah. You mentioned Dominica as an example. Uh, and I was thinking... There are a lot of small and developing states like Palau that are um, independent nations. Um, some of them are a part of sort of greater uh, Polynesia. They have come together to help get uh, more cohesive representation. But how do countries that are um, historically kind of like Puerto Rico and uh, larger parts of the Caribbean, uh, French Polynesia, principalities of these larger economies, how do they fare with regards to both representation and funding 
for these uh, these events that, you know, we, we've seen examples in the United States where Puerto Rico's in the news for a couple of days because a big hurricane hits. They get some funding. Uh, thankfully, uh, they, you know, they and Hawaii get funding when these big kinds of uh, activities happen. Do we see the same kind of support? I'm just curious from your perspective how you might compare and contrast these principalities, as it were, islands that are a part of larger nations versus the ones that are independent. Yeah, so the technical term you're looking for is subnational island jurisdiction. Uh, I love it. I knew you would have it. Subnational <laughs> island jurisdiction. Okay. IJ and how they get involved in the process. Um, and clearly, as a, as, a, as a part of a larger mainland area, um, there is a difference in how many flows and, and different responsibilities there. Um, yeah. Actually, a few weeks ago, I was, it was in St. Martin, uh, which was also devastated about five years ago by a hurricane. And interestingly, the island is the only place in the world where France and the Netherlands have a border because the island is split down the middle between France and the Netherlands. It's a very small island. But actually, that uh-huh. gave a really interesting insight to seeing the single island that both sides were equally, equally devastated and how France and the Netherlands responded alternatively to the hurricane that, that devastated the island. As far as the French are concerned, Saint-Martin is France. It is the same legally as any right. part of continental European France. Mm. The citizens there are no different. As far as the Netherlands is concerned, St. Martin is an independent country within the kingdom of the Netherlands. Um, oh, wow. But, is that also how they treat Bonaire and Aruba? Um, Aruba, Curaçao, and St. Martin are independent countries. Uh, Bonaire, Seba, St. Eustatius, the other three small islands have a slightly different uh, status, which... It, it gets very uh, okay. Back, back to Saint Martin, yeah. <laughs> but Saint Martin, as a but, but their Dutch passport, you know, French or Dutch passport holders, right. living on the island. In a way, some people would argue that actually being part of this larger, richer continental country um, helps the islands when they face a real disaster. They're able to access funding. Um, many of the islanders there would disagree and say that actually it limits them because they can only look to one place for funding. Uh, just yeah. Puerto Rico can only look to, you know, mainland US oh, yeah. How interesting. or assistance. Whereas Dominica yeah. not only got help from the neighboring islands, from Barbados, from Trinidad, from Jamaica, um, and also from larger, uh, from Europe, from North America, from South America, many different places were able to come in. And the same applies to financing. Even if you want to look at financing a new solar park in these countries, normally in the Caribbean or small island states, that financing comes from international development funding. Mm-hmm. But if you're technically part of the Netherlands or US, you are not a developing country and therefore the right. kind of funding. So yeah. each, I, the Caribbean is kind of interesting in that sense because every island is its own jurisdiction with its own set of rules. Is it in the European Union? Is it not? Is it an independent country? Um, but the reality is the geography and the vulnerabilities to climate change are the same when it comes to the people living so how do they access the funding that they need to make that transition? Well, James, it's uh, it's wonderful to get your perspective on an area of climate action and climate adaptation that I think is woefully underserved. I'm grateful for the uh, the work that you all at Island Innovation are doing. If you could pin it down to maybe one or two things, what do you think that folks watching from afar ought to try as they may from afar to keep an eye on. What do you think is most interesting about COP28 that folks should 
tr- tr- really try to follow along in the news or with, with you all? I think it's very easy to get disheartened. And every year I see that they're reporting about these cops becoming more and more negative. And I do understand the frustration that people have seeing, you know, every year all the countries coming together and not necessarily seeing any result out of it. The progress is painfully slow, but there is progress. There is movement. Um, but as you can imagine, bringing together such a diverse range of countries, trying to get the whole world to agree on how to deal with these problems is challenging. But the COP does play an important role, and not just for the political agreements, but also for the action that happens there between the key different players from um, not just the governments, but from the universities, from the NGOs, and growing more and more the private sector. So I, I think it's interesting to see how all of those players come together in somewhere like Dubai and actually use that. Um, a lot of the the negative criticism comes from you know the obvious. Well, everyone's flying there to talk about climate change. What does that um, mean? And I would argue that actually the amount of work that I can get done in that two weeks um, in terms of meeting people and getting things, you know, having all those people in one space. Um, means that I actually don't have to travel a lot for the rest of the year. And, and I, there, are, there are things that happen there. So I think remaining optimistic is important. I think the COP as a system, like any system, it needs to evolve. It does need to change. But I really hope that we see um, this year something more tangible that people can relate to and understand, okay, why is this event such a big deal when it comes to climate? Well, it is a big deal. And if you all want to follow along, you can find everything that Island Innovation is doing at islandinnovation.co. We'll link to it, of course, in the show notes. And we'd encourage you to follow along on social media, hashtag Island Voices, plural, Island Voices COP28. Is there a particular social channel that you favor that you will be posting more on? Ah, all of them. <laughs> LinkedIn, <laughs> LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Um, um, and if anyone's interested in following along, the Island Voices platform is designed for people who are not physically in Dubai to be able to see what's happening um, of concern to these island regions. So please do feel free to sign up and follow along. We will link to that. And as the page says, you can register for updates. James, as always, a wealth of information. Great to see you, my friend. Enjoy. COP will be following along uh, and enjoying it vicariously through you. Thanks, Nico. It's great to be back. So we've covered what it is like from the perspective of someone whose job it is to help a, a foreign diplomat get positioning and find their meeting rooms. We've covered why it's important for small island states like Palau and the Marshall Islands. And I thought it would be really interesting if we would take a turn towards what is it like to participate in COP as an actual industry participant in an infrastructure business that's helping build out the, on the front lines. You know, one of the things that we heard Miles Fish say is that in fact, the way we implement this through the private sector. So Julia Piper, a name that many of you will recognize, the Vice President of Policy for Good Leap is joining us. And Julia was at COP last year. Julia, I'd love to learn more about what that experience was for you. But first, hello, it's been too long. Hello, hello. I'm, you know, so glad to join you. This is sort of my 
coming back online occasion. I just had a baby, which was exciting. New addition to the, the family, new climate warrior out there. But it does mean I'm not sleeping very much. So if I stumble <laughs> over my words, Nico, please don't uh, hold me you know, too much accountable here. We won't, we won't hold it against you. And I've <laughs> never heard you be less than eloquent. So uh, I'm, I'm honored that we get to uh, b- bring you off the bench. You, yeah. you hung up the podcaster hat last year because things on the front lines with Good Leap just became more work than, uh, th- than there were margins. Obviously also you know, moving with your family and having mm-hmm. a baby contributes to the chaos. Sure. But yeah. Chaos is the is is part of the ingredient in uh, in a cop meeting or a cop conference. First and foremost, you are a trained journalist. You're you're, you've come at this from the perspective of deep investigative understanding of the of the sides of of a conversation and the stakes in the negotiations. And I thought it was really fascinating. So the way that you went to COP last year, could you explain for everyone how you became involved and and why you went? Well, I'll just uh, put one little correction out there. I actually went to Glasgow, which was 2021, which is one of the bigger COPs at that time, which I think is important because it was really known as sort of unofficially the investment COP. It was really about mobilizing dollars. I did not make it to Egypt last year. I wish I could have gone, but I think it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, COVID and everything made everything a blur, but um, certainly have been following COPS for years, as you said. And one thing that's interesting is I started my career at E&E News, which is very inside the beltway of DC policy publication. And they covered these COPS summits, the UN summits, super closely, all the political haranguing, et cetera. I moved to green tech media, just covered the business sector. And like COP had nothing to do with green tech media's day-to-day coverage of startups, of technologies being developed, of, of investment moving. I honestly feel like those two worlds for me have now collided where COP today, in COP today, these worlds have collided in that the money conversation, the startups, the investments, the innovation has now worked its way into, I think, the COP landscape in a way that it didn't really exist before. And I actually think the Glasgow Mm -hmm. Summit was one of those key ones where we saw it was 450 different financial institutions that controlled over $130 trillion, 40% of global financial assets at that COP at Glasgow in 2021 they all agreed to put climate at the center of their work. That was a foundational shift. Now you go and say, okay, did they actually mobilize those dollars? Here we are two years later. The answer is no, we have not seen the progress we need. However, I'm of the mindset that getting people on the record is key. Getting those investors to make those commitments is important because then we have something to hold them accountable to. And I think we actually get the conversation started to connect those worlds where they then look at what investments they can make with renewed interest. It takes someone at a meeting, raising their hand, saying, I want to bring in someone who's a hydrogen expert, a solar expert, a grid uh, reliability services expert. And that's how the money starts flowing into the solution. Because right now, I think there's a disconnect about high-level goals and then what it's actually going to take to get there. And it's all about the money. And so this year's COP, I think it's going to be interesting to see where are we at. The global stock take is a theme, you know, we'll discuss. Where are we at in the follow-through? Because uh, the COP I, I went to was really interesting to see sort of what kind of commitments people c- could make following the Paris high-level commitment of like, let's curb emissions. Then it was like, okay, how? And now we're really needing to drill down. Mind you, I hate the, co- mm-hmm. the, co- the word drilled down. It's too oil-centric. We need to rev up, you know, where we're at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, well, we, we need to take stock of yeah. what we have committed to and what's been accomplished not only since the Paris Accord, but even since Glasgow and since Egypt. 
um, you know, one of the things that is fascinating that we've talked a bit about is that the conference is like a conference within a conference within a conference. And there are layers not only of security, but of uh, activity. Everything from what most would be, uh, would recognize as like a typical conference, a, an RE plus uh, style event. How did you experience Glasgow on the ground? Put put us in that place for those who have no experience whatsoever with this and, and sort of how the different communities interact with one another. Well, first of all, Glasgow is just great because it was like moody and Scotland's awesome. And you got to like sip whiskey half the time while talking about climate solutions. So I was here for that. Um, no, but in reality, it was a lot of long days. There are tons of side events at COPS. And again, this is where a lot of people criticize saying there's so much pomp and circumstance around these COPS. I think this year's um, in Abu Dhabi and in, in Dubai is going to have 70,000 people in 200 countries. And at some point you say, how productive can you be? But I honestly really believe that the main gathering and the side gatherings end up netting so many valuable conversations. So I went and actually emceed the World Climate Foundation's uh, sidebar meeting at uh, the COP in Glasgow. It was a two-day summit of all massive corporations, investors, startups who all met on the sidelines of COP to have their own summit, if you will. So that to me was yeah. super important. The Atlantic Council is a think tank I work with. They look at the geopolitics of energy. Flash forward to today, geopolitics and energy and clean tech are so intertwined more than ever, as we've seen the war in Ukraine and now conflict in the Middle East driving discussions around resources. So the Atlantic Council, for instance, will have its own set of side events, which I all think are super important in getting back to how do we all play our part in meeting that high level goal? It is not just on governments. Governments have to set the framework and they will make commitments and we hope that they ratify them and make them, you know, put some teeth behind them politically. But nonetheless, we're going to need that private sector, as you alluded to in the intro, to, to step up. And that's why I think those side events outside the main negotiations are as, if not more valuable in a way, because that's how we're going to start to see dollars flow. It's something on the order of $100 trillion that needs to be moved to combat the climate crisis. That was um, UN climate envoy Mark Carney's sort of outlook. Uh, that's a lot of money. Um, governments will play a role, but we absolutely need those, those sidebar actors, including everyone in your audience right now playing their part. And so it can feel distant. It can feel like it's just this pomp and circumstance thing, cop, and doesn't mean anything and there's no teeth. But what it actually does is it's a really convening that I think sets targets, creates some peer pressure, and then we all take that home and figure out what we're going to do in our day-to-day -day lives to execute. And I hope your audience, even if they're not there, thinks about what is it that they're contributing to the high-level goal. And maybe you're not even motivated by climate change, but there's certainly a lot of money that's going to flow into the solution one way or the other. Except that I'll give you a little twist in that we are speaking at this moment where all this momentum happened in Glasgow. We're talking about follow through, but interest rates have gone up to such a degree that there's something on the order of $14 billion that's been pulled out of ESG funds just in 2023. So money is actually, despite all these commitments, flowing out of the sustainability sector as we speak today. And maybe some in your audience are feeling that. Some, a lot of companies, I know you had a residential. Probably most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're feeling the crunch. So how do we square these two things, right? You have high level goals, big commitments, and then we're seeing actions not align with that. So I think this is a really critical moment to have tough conversations um, and that hopefully the macroeconomic perspective, uh, you know, landscape starts to shift so that it's easier to keep money flowing in. But now is not a time where we can avoid these conversations because if we slow down a, a little bit, it's going to be even harder to catch up. You introduced a term earlier, stock take. Uh, the, uh, I had to look this up when you first told me about it. The first ever global stock take is set to conclude at this year's 
COP28. I didn't even know what stock take meant. I can sort of intuit. But first of all, why is that important? And what does it mean? And um, how long has this concept of the stock take been in action? So yeah, the global stock take, and this is why many people think of this year's COP as maybe one of the most important since the Paris Agreement, which I know your other guests spoke to, because um, as part of the Paris Agreement, it was mandated there was an, that there was an inventory of global progress on climate action. Um, so looking at where how everyone had progressed to the point about how are we executing, and that's all set to conclude this year in Dubai, and world leaders are expected to present their political response, like how, what are they... If they're on track, great. If they're not, why? What are their next steps that they're going to take? So the initial analysis has already shown that countries are not on track to meet the Paris Agreement's goal of mitigating global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and we have to move much faster. So like we know that much. What are governments now going to say about that when they meet? You know, Are they going to have renewed goals? Are they going to have excuses? This is why I still fall down on the camp of even though we're off off track, isn't it better to have them on the record explaining what they're going to do next? I think the inverse of no meeting, no pomp and circumstance, no sidebars is a de- would be negative for everybody. But uh, yeah, so we're looking at the global stock take and I, I would put it on the private sector too. Like I mentioned, all those financial commitments that were made a couple of years ago, what's the stock take on that? Where have those investors landed? The banks, the insurers, the venture capitalists? Um, there's a lot of value still there. It's going to be really interesting. You mentioned that it's the most consequential since Paris Agreement, and that's certainly um, not inflated uh, hyperbole there because a lot of folks after Paris Agreement said, oh, well, you know, this thing, the stock take won't even happen until uh, 2023. <laughs> so most countries are just going to kick the ball down the field and we'll see what happens in 2025. So everyone knew at in twenty. 15 at the Paris Agreement, that there was going to be this 10-year window, the stock take happens. And then there's two years to kind of have countries say, well, here's what we're going to do to mitigate anything that we haven't done in, ter- in terms of committing to these um, these collective goals. So this upcoming COP, COP28, is essentially a reckoning. <laughs> and it's one that a lot of countries are not ready for. And ours has, uh, I mean, I would argue that the um, the current administration with the IRA is one of the countries in the world that has taken the most, um, the most action towards saying, well, this is what we're doing about it. (laughs) This is how we're trying to fix it. Yeah, I would agree with that. What's a shame is that the reality of our financial situation, which I think is a hangover from COVID, you know, we saw markets really get whiplash for all the demand that was created and subsided and oil markets went awry and uh, again, the war in Ukraine started stimulating demand in different ways for clean technology to get off of Russian oil. Nonetheless, here we are in this inflationary environment, which actually we have to be thankful in that overall we have not we have not ended up in a recession yet. Don't want to eat my mm. words on that. And we have slowly no. brought down here in the U.S. anyway inflation. Other countries are actually dealing with it in a much worse way. You mentioned the IRA. I just bring up the the financial situation, because it does unfortunately undermine the Inflation Reduction Act, the fact that it's so expensive to develop projects right now. And that's not specific to renewables, but it does make those um, newer business models, which are, I'd argue, a little more sensitive to to rising prices, harder to execute on. So we see oil stocks doing well right now, and we see clean energy stocks taking a hit. And that's a main point of discussion at COP as well, is 
the role of oil. It's happening in the Middle East. The yeah. United Arab Emirates has obviously invested it's, in legacy systems. It's the systems. biggest con- controversy of this COP. Exactly. And so is, this has been a controversy for a long time, is what is the role of oil companies and oil states in the transition? They arguably have one of the most powerful seats at the table if they are willing to invest some of their own capital into the transition. Of course, that could compete with their legacy business. But I think that's going to be a main flashpoint here, too, is figuring out, you know, once we get through this current financial turmoil, who's going to be positioned to lead the clean energy transition? Because I certainly believe it's not going away just because we're having some rough patches here. So that's why we got to keep the conversation front and center. Yeah, uh, there are plenty of controversies, not the least of which being that the president of COP28 is also the chief executive of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. There are many different headlines that you can watch. I'll note that um, I've been particularly, I'll say, proud of The Guardian for uh, for holding account, uh, holding accountable the global leadership and especially COP28 in terms of publishing journalism around the various sort of controversy and scandal. Uh, I'm curious, as a uh, reformed journalist, where are you going to be invested? You, you have precious little time now with a full-time job and a family how are you going to follow along? Where are you watching? Like, where would you tell folks to like any, any, any time hacks on keeping up with what's happening over the 12 days of COP? Well, I think it depends on which channel you want to tune into. Again, there's so much to COP, right? There's the main negotiations among countries. And then as we just discussed, there's a lot of side events. So I'd honestly look at like the Wall Street Journal side events where they're going to have business leaders. The World Climate Foundation that I mentioned, they have this multi-day, I believe it's also a virtual streamed event that's just the corporate side. And they are very much centering the discussion around stock take, but specifically from a private sector perspective, non-government perspective. So I direct people there. I think you mentioned Abu Dhabi. I just want to take a second on that. I actually am very fortunate to work with the Zayed Sustainability Prize. Full disclosure, it is a UAE-backed, Abu Dhabi-backed prize that puts up to $600,000 into early stage startups and nonprofits around the world who are working on climate solutions. And I get to be part of the selection committee for that. And yes, of course, this is a a region of the world that is heavily funded by oil. But I do think, at least in my interactions with them, that there's a real conversation happening about the energy transition, because I think, again, these governments recognize Saudi Arabia being a prime example, that they want to participate in this. They don't want to be left out of the discussion. You know, China's not slowing down its clean energy manufacturing. We aren't slowing down here in the United States. There will be a massive amount of economic activity around the clean energy sector in decades to come. Again, the current blip, market blip aside, I think, of financial struggles. So I think what's going to be interesting is not writing people off, but putting pressure on entities, on governments to participate in a more active way. Because Abu Dhabi, I think, is kind of well positioned to have that discussion. They are increasing their solar output. I think they just hit a new set a new record for per capita solar in the UAE. The the head of the, the presidency there yeah, is urging on the all- largest solar project in the world. Exactly. We're seeing record low prices happening in the Middle East. There is activity there that moves the whole sector forward. So I just don't want to write that off while also not making excuses. And I think that the goal that they've set of the presidency um, is to have governments triple their renewable energy capacity by 2030 as part of the negotiations. That was the pressure that the that they put on as the organizers. And sure enough, the United States and China came together just last week and made that commitment. That's significant on a lot of levels. The two largest emitters around the world, especially two that are currently kind of 
experiencing mounting tensions are able to come together and agree to that much at least. I think it sets a tenor that's a little hopeful. I hope more than a little hopeful. Again, it's all about the follow through, but I think those rec- those those targets are important to have on the record. Julia, you're always a wealth of information. I'm so grateful to have you as an ally, someone I know I can turn to for an informed opinion. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to give us the perspective of your having been on the ground and uh, in particular, something that even I learned coming into this conversation about the impact and importance of Glasgow. And I will be personally following the World Climate Foundation's multi-day stream to to get the take on how the, the corporate side of the stock take really does matter. Because at the end of the day, uh, the, the entire purpose of this episode and sort of my own discovery around COP, which is admittedly ignorant until I decided to get smart on it through you and several other friends, is um, you know, we, we can't ignore what's happening on the global stage. Everything in the geopolitical uh, realm affects the, our work at home. And we are being looked to as a country that sets the example. And that's done by the corporate sector by the people, the even the mom and pops, building solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, all of it. It all is a, it, it is the it is the tip of the spear. It's the actual action taking place in climate action. Julia, thank you for the work that you and Good Leap are doing. Thanks for the work you're doing outside of Good Leap as well. You're an example for many, and um, we're grateful. I really appreciate that, Nick, Nico. And uh, yeah, I'll just say as a concluding thought. You know, Good Leap works on clean energy solutions for the home here in the United States. Why are we at COP? Because again, every little piece of the puzzle matters. When you break it down, 40% of emissions in the U.S. come from decisions made in the home. So wait a minute, that's actually a huge part of the puzzle. So every heat pump, every solar panel, every you know, geothermal system installed, or whatever, HVAC, to me, that's all part of meeting that broader 1.5 degree Celsius goal that was set in Paris. And I think all, uh, pretty much everyone in your audience is probably playing a, playing a part in that too. So thanks for having me. No baby cries in the background. We did it, Nico. <laughs> Yay. Success. Big. Let's hope that cop goes as swimmingly as the last uh, 30 minutes went for us. Cheers. All right, big. <laughs> all right. Well, you and I have the privilege now of at least sounding a little smarter in our next social engagement. When someone brings up cop, you could at least know that it's the conference of the parties. When someone mentions the global stock take, you won't be left in the dark. And I hope that you are now going to take seriously what's happening in Dubai and every cop hereafter. Did the stock take give us insight into whether or not the last seven years have really gotten any progress? What do you think? Please let me know your take on COP28. Controversy? progress. Either way, this is an organized and annual way that we, as a global community, get the chance to weigh in and everyone gets a voice for that. I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for you tuning in once again. Thank you. If you'd like to read from the copious notes that I researched on this topic while I was getting ready to do these interviews... You can head over to mysuncast.com and click on the show notes tab. Of course, we'll link to that in the description. Whether you're watching or listening, it should be relatively close. Please click the subscribe button, smash the like button, and by the way, share this with someone that you think would appreciate learning a little bit more about the COP process. 
Thanks to our sponsors who help make this show possible each and every week. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. We'll also link to them in the description as well so that you can check them out. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solo Warrior. It's half the battle.